Hello, I'm Chris Causey. Welcome to Encounter Church because that's what we believe. And uh, no. So uh, we're going to continue a series today called Guardrails. And today I, t- I want to start with a disclaimer because um, it's one of those messages where, I, quite honestly, I'm not going to say anything you've never heard. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and let you. If you're looking for something profound today, you're not going to get it. Right? You, you might find a better quote on Twitter. Okay, that's going to be like, oh, that's really good. Or uh, some, some Tom Brady kind of pregame press release statement that's like more profound than what I'm going to say today. But the things that are most helpful in life oftentimes are things that we've heard before. Right? It's, it's the, the tension. It's the, the hearing it, but the not the heeding it that oftentimes gets us in trouble. And today's one of those passages. And so I want to say that on the front side because I, I read your body language while I'm speaking. And I'm going to see that where you're like, oh, my goodness. I'm glad I didn't pay for this because I already know this, right? And so you, you can get a refund today. Don't worry. Um, but just for you to be aware that I am aware, that you're aware that you've heard this before, okay? But it's profound if we start to practice it. So that's my disclaimer before I jump in. Um, when I was in second grade, uh, I was in uh, Miss Arnett's class. And Miss Arnett was one of those really like gruff, scary teachers, you know, who's like, they were smaller than most people, really thin, and and they kind of made up for their stature by having this attitude and this way they could carry their bodies where they'd walk into a room and they would command all the kids' attentions out of fear, right? I mean, she understood the power of a dictatorship. And and so she would walk in and, and in a group of like kind of rough kind of rugged, second grade, um, in a really kind of poor, um, pretty intense environment that I grew up in, uh, she would walk in and she would rule that class with an iron fist. And this was a day and age where corporal punishment, where teachers could get away with things that now would result in like Supreme Court hearings. And, and at that time, she, would, she had a, an abandoned library that had been um, condemned because bats uh, kept, kept living in it. Right? And it was attached to her classroom. Like, no joke, bats had kind of set up. I don't know what you call like a, a roost of bats, but that's what was happening right, by, right attached to her classroom. And the library literally had to be moved because they couldn't get rid of these bats in this like 120-year-old building. And so uh, it was attached to her. And the way that she would manage her classroom was if you got out of hand, she would hit you with a ruler as she walked by you. And if the ruler didn't work, she would then take the the paddle and and she would grab you by the hand and walk you into the condemned abandoned room. And then she would begin to beat you and then leave you and walk back out for the lesson to hit home that if you make it out alive today and the bats don't eat you, you're going to listen to me next time, right? I mean, like, no joke, this, this, this was like a weekly occurrence for me. You see, me and a guy named Robbie, a good friend of mine, we would sit there beside each other and almost regularly, weekly, sometimes dailies, we would get hit with the rope. We'd get hit with, I mean, her ruler, or we would be taken into the condemned room. Sometimes, sometimes at the same time, because Miss Arnett was warming up on one fanny before she went to the other one kind of deal. Like, oh, I can work at both right now. Right? And then you both are going to stay in the condemned bat room and think about what you've done. And, and so, like, 
This, this was my second grade year. And yes, I probably need counseling. Um, and I recognize that too. Like I said, there's a lot of things that you are aware of that I am aware of today. And, and just like that ruled my second grade experience. And when we were on the playground, Robbie and another friend of ours, Tim, I mean, we'd get in trouble out there and ripple back into the classroom. And my second grade year, I was a hellion. I mean, it's just like if a little chubby second grader could be a punk, I was that kid. Like, I thought I was bad. I thought I was tough. And I could, you know, because spending time in a condemned bat room, it does something to a man on the inside. You know what I mean? Like, you just start to harden up. And so that's kind of my second grade year. And then third grade year, something happens. I'm put in a different classroom. I was in my second grade year, I was at the lowest level. Third grade year, I get put in one of the higher level classrooms. And overnight, the trajectory of my life completely changed. Completely. I was the first one in my family to graduate high school. First one in my family to graduate college. And I mean, the whole trajectory of my life radically changed. And it wasn't just because of third grade Miss Campbell in a classroom environment where she's fostering education. The big part of my change from second to third grade year was I had a whole new set of friends. When I was in second grade, Timothy and Robbie and I kind of set the, the climate in that second grade classroom. Going in the third grade classroom, I was no longer around those two guys, and a whole new set of friends came into my life. And those set of friends would become the friends I would have all the way to the point when I graduated high school. Because I would stay in that group with them and I'd continue to grow and I'd continue to learn. And by the time I graduated high school, I graduated with honors. When most people would have met me in second grade, they would have written me off. I was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air long before there was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Right? And the reality is, is that all of that had to do with the circle of friends I had in my life. Which isn't profound, like, right? Uh, we all growing up with parents um, experience that constant refrain from them that your, your, your friends really matter. Or who are they? I want to meet your friends. Like, this whole idea of friendship. And then you get older and then you become a parent and all of a sudden it's elevated and like tracking devices and like all of a sudden keyboard tracking starts to become an option and you're like reading their emails and their text messages and you're, you're, you know what Snapchat is because you like, you're, you're kind of monitoring what's happening on the backside and they think it can't be tracked and you're like ha 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 maniacally laughing, right? Because you've got like web sniffers in your house and I mean, as a parent, you know that. Some kid comes around that you're like, mm, that's bad news. Get away from my child. Like, we all, as parents, we will spend money and send our kids to private schools, to elite clubs. We will up and move to a different community just to get our kids around a better group of potential friends. Right? That we understand that friendships matter and that a lot of the direction and the quality of life comes out of the circle of friends when you're a child. And so as parents, or as people who've been parented, we saw that play out in our lives. But what I want to dig into today is the thing that I see as a pastor that's the disconnect. You see, somewhere along the line, when we're children, we grow up, we start to kind of, I don't think it's an intentional dismantling, but we begin to dismantle those guardrails of friendships as we become adults. We think that the lessons that we heard, um, the, the reality of the, the power and the impact and the influence of friends is only for kids. When I was a kid or my kid. 
And it's really important for them, but it's not a lesson that I need. It's not a guardrail that I need in my life because I'm an adult now, and that's one of those lessons you need when you're a child. But the reality is, I think, as I spend time counseling people, as I hear most, uh, as I sit and I hear the stories of individuals in their lives and their choices, that oftentimes what I hear unpacked is that most of their regrets weren't born out of them being alone or solitary. It usually happened in a crowd or a group of friends. That friendships still impact our lives today as adults. And it's one of those things that if you and I are going to begin to be people who intentionally have lives with better decisions and fewer regrets, it means that we have to go back to this childhood lesson about the course of our life being determined by the crowd that, and the circle that we call our friends. That our friends, not just when we were children, affected the direction and the quality of our lives, that our friends still today affect the direction and the quality of our lives. And that you and I can almost look into our circle of friends today and have a crystal ball for who we're going to become tomorrow. That's still real. That's still a reality for us. And so I want to look at one passage today. It'll be brief. It's a simple passage. Again, the challenge of today is that you've heard it before. It's a passage that maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home or a religious home, and so you never heard this verse specifically quoted, but chances are you heard the sentiment spoken over you. That this is a sentiment that your parents, your grandparents, loved ones in your life, teachers, probably pressed into you. And chances are, even if you're, this is your first time and you're kind of exploring this whole religious concept again, or this whole Christian world again, that it's probably a sentiment that you're speaking over your own children if you have them. It's found in Proverbs 13, 20. And before I jump into it, just for you to understand, the book of Proverbs is, is probably one of my favorite books. It's one of those things. It's just these little one-liners that are meant to be memorized. Um, it was written by, it's majority of it's written by a guy who's considered to be the, one of the wisest men who have ever lived, a guy named Solomon, who was a king almost 3,000 years ago in the, the ancient nation state of Israel at the time, and profoundly wise. In fact, most of the books I read today, most of the articles, most of the wisdom that I hear um, from commentators or leadership gurus are just a repackaging of what Solomon had already said in the book of Proverbs. You spend time reading Proverbs, and all of a sudden, you feel like you have Patrick Leoncini's next speaking points at a conference, because it's already there. It's already tapped into to this, like, they're just swimming in ancient wisdom that God deposited almost 3,000 years ago in the book of Proverbs. But the book of Proverbs was written primarily as a parenting book, and specifically as a prep for becoming a future king. So there's a lot of details about leading and making wise choices, but it was all taught by Solomon to his children. And in fact, when Solomon begins to kind of unpack this book, this parenting book, he starts like the very opening story of this book is a story about the power and the impact of friendship. That's his opening story in the book of Proverbs. And instead of jumping into that story, I want to take a passage that he writes, that he speaks later that summarizes about friendship in Proverbs 13, 20. But before I do that, I want to hit pause and just talk about the, like, this, we probably never think about relationships, but why do friendships make a difference in our life? Why are relationships so powerful? And the reason why is because rooted in our very nature, 
in the image of God himself is a God who values relationships. We go beyond what monkeys, what orangutans, what sardines. I mean, we go beyond any kind of scope of community and relationship you see in the natural world, in the animal kingdom, because we reflect the unique attribute of God, a God who values relationships. And so we value relationships. We're drawn to relationships. We're, we're incomplete without that community. And that's because... He values them. I mean, the story of Christianity in, in one sentence is a God who values relationships so much that he becomes one of us so that he can restore the relationship with us through the cross and his resurrection. I mean, that's the story of Christianity is God trying to reconcile a broken relationship. But even if you don't believe or, un, or you're still unsure about the whole Christian reality, our own lives reflect the power of relationships because relationships they're they're vulnerable places and you step into those vulnerable places and you share who you are that and in the midst of sharing these vulnerable kind of scary like insights about who you are you get acceptance and acceptance acceptance is incredibly powerful Acceptance is probably the reason you're sitting beside the person you're sitting beside. It's the reason you would call if there was a, a family emergency. It's the reason you would call the people on your speed dial right now is because you know when they answer, they're instantly going to accept you no matter what you've done or no matter what you say. Acceptance is at the root for why ISIS is able to continue to recruit and to develop this terrorist organization because they promise these young, fragile minds, look, come and be a part of something big and we, you'll be accepted into our family. Our desire for acceptance is powerful. And it's because we were made for that. And friendships, relationships play into that wiring. And that's why relationships matter. is because when you are vulnerable and you crave acceptance, you're willing to make and do foolish or profound things for it. And so Solomon gives the wisdom this way. Very simple. He says, walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harms. Like, I could give you probably three to five minutes and you could memorize this. It's that, I mean, it's just really kind of simple. Like I said, not profound. Walk with the wise, become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. But here's where I want to break it up. Because friendships will affect the direction and the quality of our life. And that's what we see in this passage. So whether you're young or you're old, whether you're in between, right, this is a reality for all of us. There's both a promise and a warning. There's a direction to it, right? That He says, walk with the wise and become wise. There's this directionality. To walk with means that you're doing life with these people, that you're, you're engaged with them, you're, you're with them, and it's just this symbolic notion because this is a day and age where the primary means of kind of rolling with someone was walking. They didn't have cars. You didn't say, hey, I'm going to go hang out with my homies and jump on a donkey. You walked, right? I mean, that's, that's what you did before you got a car. We live in a day and age of cars and transportation, and so that point for us became when we could start to leave our parents and start to be alone in a car riding with someone. And all of a sudden, we start to carve out this own like private life where we can start to develop who we are and these group of friends. And, and Solomon's calling out the same thing. He's like, when you start to walk with these individuals, when you're no longer with me and your mom and you're hanging out with them, I want you to be aware you're moving somewhere. There's a direction to your life. And he says, if 
you, so walk with them. And the word wise, like Solomon, when he uses it, has a very specific definition in mind. He knows um, the wise are the people, very simply put, who understand that choices have consequences. I mean, if you want to really, really reduce this idea of wisdom down, someone who is wise understands that what they do today will affect what happens tomorrow. I save today, I have more money tomorrow. If I, you know, push away the cheesecake, it's going to pay off tomorrow. Like, there's this idea that people who are wise understand the connectivity to life, that today and tomorrow are linked together. Very simple, but that's what he's referring to. He's like, when you walk with people who understand that your, their choices have consequences, he says, what starts to happen, right, this is really crazy, is that you become wise. So here's this kid who's not, we can assume, is not wise, spending time with people who are, and what starts to happen in his life is he becomes wise too, or she becomes wise too. Again, not profound. But what Solomon is trying to internalize with this very simple sentence is, he says, son, I want you to understand that people who fill your calendar will ultimately shape your character. He's like, the people who fill up those calendar appointments in your life ultimately will shape your character. That belonging will precede behavior. That belonging will precede who you're becoming. And he's trying to like synthesize this down so that it bounces around in his children's heads. He wants them to internalize this message. And so he makes it very succinct. Because what starts to happen in that play out is, and you know, when you've been around people who you would call wise, they have a different perspective in life, don't they? They see things differently. They say things differently. And what starts to happen is you start to internalize the way they see the world. You start to internalize what they say about the world. You, you notice how they respond. You notice how they act. And because of that power for acceptance, you start to do the very same things. Even if you're not there yet, you start to act wise before you're even wise. You start to internalize what they're doing even before you understand the why they're doing it. And that's why you become wise is eventually there's this flywheel effect that their perspectives and their choices start to become your perspective and your choices. The... Um, Louis Zamperini, who's kind of famous for the story in the movie uh, Unbroken, right? It's this compelling, powerful movie and book, if you've, if you've ever kind of engaged with it, of the story of this World War II pilot um, soldier who's, um, they're on a rescue search mission, and their plane crashes in the Pacific, and they float for 40-plus days in the middle of the Pacific, fighting off sharks, having to catch fish and, um, like, eat birds. I mean, it's just, just raw raw kind of experience, he finally, after 40 plus days, washes up on the shore of an island only to find that he's captured by the enemy. He's taken into prison camps and he's tortured and then he's moved to a, by this, this really sadistic um, war criminal that was considered one of the top 40 war criminals of World War II called the Bird. He, he finally gets out of that prison camp and he's moved to another prison camp only to find that the bird is there too. That same man who had this life mission of torturing Louis Amperini. But what's, 
What's not talked about in the movie, what's not written about the book, is that there were other individuals in the midst of this prisoner camp, and one of them was a guy named Greg Boyenton, or as the nickname was, he was Major Pappy. And Major Pappy was in the same prison cell as Louis Zamperini. And in his book, he talks about the impact that Louis Zamperini had. While we know him because of his grit and his tenacity and his toughness, Pappy talks about the influence of Zamperini as a friend. That Zamperini had a way that he, he would notice that the prisoners were discouraged, that he, he were friends, that they were in his prison cell that he was friends with, and he would talk about the Italian recipes that his mom had and how good they were. And he would write the recipes on the wall, and he would, he would remind them that one day when they get out, they're all going to eat it together. And as, as a friend to that group of men, he would give them buoyancy and he would encourage them. And his tenacity started to become their tenacity and they survived too. And they wrote books. And they recollected. And that Louis Zamperini, while the movie Unbroken kind of chronicles this individuality and this ruggedness, his broader impact was the fact that he helped to save others' lives because he was a friend to them. Because friendship affects the direction of your life. But even in this story, we see it also affects the quality of life. That a friend literally could make what would be hell on earth a place that you can survive just by being a friend through this storyline. And that's what Solomon points out in the second passage, right? He says, he, he always, like you walk with wise, you become wise. But he says, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Now, here's the idea. He, where wise had a very distinct meaning, fools did too. And so here's the simple definition of a fool. A fool is someone whose life is disconnected. They believe they can do today and not pay tomorrow. They believe that they can make choices, they can spend money, they can engage in activities, and it will not have an impact on their life. That is the very overly simplistic definition of a fool. It's your kid saying, no, it won't. No, 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 it, it, it won't, that won't happen to me. Like, that's the fool's mantra, is it won't happen to me. They're the exception to every rule, every single time. And that's the heart of foolishness, is they live with this disconnectedness to life. And their, their lives reflect it. And notice that he says that, the person who's a companion with them, I think this is so critical, right? Because don't even read the rest of it. Just pause. When we were growing up and you're hanging out with people who we would now call a companion of fools, oftentimes our disclaimer back or our argument back to our parents or our grandparents or our loved ones were, but I'm not doing what they're doing. Right? We would, we would push back and say, but I'm not participating that was our argument. Mom, I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm just hanging out with them. And that's a really compelling argument if you're a fool. It feels good. It feels right. But Solomon is wise, right? He, he doesn't say a companion of fool that being around a companion of fools makes you a fool. He doesn't say you become a fool. What does he say? He says you suffer harm. The warning around being a companion of fools is not that you become a fool, but that your life suffers because they were fools. It's this idea that when their lives explode or implode, you're hit with the shrapnel. 
of their disaster. Their explosion sends shrapnel that ripples through your life. And that's the warning. The warning is not around participation. It's around proximity. It's like you don't have to participate with the fools. You just have to have proximity to them. And I think this is a really profound lesson Solomon's trying to deposit into his children's hearts. It's like, like you just need to realize it's not about the fact that you're, you're talking like them or that you're doing what they're doing. It's just the fact that you're around them while they're doing it. And there's repercussions to that. You suffer harm because of their foolish choices. And he, he desires to, to really press into this. And I experienced this my sophomore year of college. I helped to start a fraternity um, at, at campus at school I was attending. And we quickly, kind of overnight, literally, became one of the most popular, one of the most kind of dominant um, fraternities on campus. And we were making inroads in all these different kind of areas that fraternities made inroads. But we were also making inroads in the parties that we threw and kind of some of the elaborate things that we would do. And in the process um, of kind of walking through this path, helping to start this fraternity, I, I really kind of developed around me a circle of friends who, whose lives and choices were things I didn't want to have in my own life. That I grew up around alcoholism. I grew up around drug abuse. And I, I, didn't want to, like, I didn't want that to be present in my life, but it was present in my friends' lives. And eventually what started to happen over the course of just my sophomore year alone is that I started to realize that if friends aren't careful with their own lives, they're probably not going to be careful with yours either, right? That if they don't care what's happening to their bodies, they don't mind if you start to abuse yours either. And that's what started to happen. That because they had no regard for their own lives and their own choices, they didn't care that I was starting to do the same thing and that I was starting on the same path as them. Until the point that by the end of my sophomore year, because of a series of choices and um, just a lot of brokenness in my life, um, I almost ended it completely. And that this is a lesson that while in second grade I had absorbed it, by the time I was a sophomore in college, I'd forgotten it. And I paid the price and that there are regrets I have today, there are choices that I've made that still haunt me into my 30s that I made in that season. Because there's still that shrapnel present and the choices that they made and the choices that I made. And I remember I would hear myself saying, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to participate, right? Or I, I wouldn't want my other group of friends knowing where I'd been or who I'd been with because I was ashamed of what they had done and where they had gone. And that should have been a warning to me. That should have been kind of the red lights inside of my, my soul were like blinking, like, mayday, like, this is bad. Why are you doing this? But I kept ignoring them. And eventually what starts to happen is that you just completely ignore it altogether. And that's why I said earlier when I started this message, there's nothing I'm going to say today that's profound. But here's what I think it is. Here's what I think is, is um, worth listening to. As Solomon speaks these words to his children. Uh, if you were here about a month and a half ago, I told you a story about Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and some choices he made. Rehoboam, Rehoboam makes choices that when his father dies and he passes the kingdom on to him and he's now the king, because of his, circles, because of his circle of friends, um, he makes some choices that completely rips the kingdom apart. 
His life is undone because of choices, but specifically because of the circle of friends he had. A kid who grows up listening to this advice, he hears it, but he doesn't heed it. But I think the truly profound part of it is that Solomon speaks this to his children and that Solomon, when you study the life of Solomon, Solomon, when he gets to the end, he's undone because of the people he surrounds himself with too. That this is not something that if you can repeat it, you're immune from it. It's not enough just to have memorized this passage or this truth. We have to actualize it in our lives. We have to practice it regularly. And, and we have to avoid, like Solomon and like his son, that same mistake where just because we've heard it, we think we've heeded it. And that you and I step into our adult lives. And what happens is we step into one of the places where this is dangerous is you step into a new, uh, kind of a new sphere, right? Maybe it's you get married and now um, you kind of start to develop a group of like married friends or whether you start a new job and, and you're, or a new role at your business and now you've got a new circle of people you're working with and you step into these new arenas and this advice applies to those moments, not just your childhood. But that when you walk into a new boardroom filled with people, this dynamic is at play, and you have a choice to make. And there's a, a sense of when you step up, whether it's a new area of volunteering or service in the community or a new stage of life, that we have to be cognizant that when we step into these new arenas, the reality that Solomon speaks applies to us. And we have to decide, okay, am I going to choose to walk with the wise or be a companion of fools? It's also a great diagnostic tool because you can look around your existing circle. And not just look around, but really look into your circle. And you ask yourself, are these the people that I want to become like? Am I okay becoming like them? And that's not a question about you judging them. That's a question about you deciding as you're staring into your future, is this the path that you want to be on? Your friends are the billboards. They're the brochures for the destination you're headed to. And if you look and you read it and you're not excited about the destination you're headed to, then you should probably pick a different path, is what Solomon's saying. I think this is one of those wonderful gifts from God where it allows us to take a pause and before we're hit with the shrapnel of their lives, we can say, is this, is this a safe place? Am I becoming wiser or am I sitting in a ticking time bomb, just waiting to explode. Because those who walk with the wise become wise, and those who are companion of fools suffer harm. And one of the things that we built into Encounter Church when, when we started meeting here was the reality that at the end of the day, this, when people are circled in relationships, that's where life change, and that's where protection, and that's where direction comes. It's not in rows. Like we can sit here and learn, and we can sing, and we can walk out, and we, but no one beside us may know what's happening in our lives. But when you're in a circle with people, they start to, they start to get to know you. They, they know your struggles. They know your tragedies. They know your triumphs. And in the midst of getting to know you, in the midst of those circles, whether it's serving on Sunday mornings, whether it's a life group during the week, or maybe it's even kind of processing through faith in a, in a specific life group that we have that's designed for people who are working through some questions about life and faith and grace and all of this Christian idea stuff. 
That wherever it is that when we're in the midst of a circle, people know us and we're known and they can speak words to us. They can challenge us. They can call us. Because when you're with wise people, have you ever noticed they call each other out? They say, hey, man, I don't, I don't know about that. That's not wise. Like I have friends who if I was walking towards a cliff, they would stop me. Do you have friends, if, you were, if your marriage was walking towards a cliff, they would step in and say something? That if you were walking toward, towards a cliff financially, that they would step into your life and say something? Do you have someone in your life who cares about you enough that they desire for you to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets, enough to the point that they would even say something that they, they see in your life that they don't agree with? I mean, I'm walking with a family right now, and it is devastating. And, and I think, what if, they, what if they'd had a circle of friends who could have stepped in and waved the flags and said, this is a disaster, what are you doing? But no one did. In fact, it was the opposite. It's someone they were friends with who was in the very same stage and place in life that they were, and so they're encouraging it. And they are hitched their wagons together, and they're both headed towards a cliff, and there's no one in their life to say, hey, this is going to end bad. And so that's why we created groups at this church. Not because we're perfect, but because we know we need each other. Because we know we need each other's perspectives. Because if you and I are going to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets, it starts with us becoming intentional about our friendships because realizing that our friends will affect the direction and the quality of our lives.